But that was another earth-shattering experience for me. To think that there are actually people that believe that. Because notice Paul in this passage, he doesn't say, most gladly therefore will I ignore my infirmities. Most gladly therefore will I throw them away or pretend they don't exist. No, he said, I will glory in my infirmities. Because my infirmity is what set me apart. My infirmity is what God uses as a vessel to minister his message. Mm -hmm. My hope is that when people see me living life and doing things that others may have thought that I couldn't do, that they will be encouraged that if I can do it, they can. Because the same God that empowers me can empower them. Just to give you a little bit of familiarity with me, um, there is a little bio in the bulletin, so you can take some time to look at that. But I just want to let you know that I'm a good friend of Scott Domont, Scott Domont, who has addressed you in the past, and he is the one that made the connection for me here at Sheridan Road Baptist Church. And I'm really excited to be here, and this kind of brings me back to my roots because um, I, I was raised in the Baptist Church as a child. Um, I now attend Northwest Gospel Hall in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a Plymouth Brethren Fellowship. But I spent um, basically 17 years on and off in the Baptist Church. That's where I came to know the Lord Jesus. That's where I was baptized. Um, and that's where I was when... Uh, the turning point of my life occurred, and I'll get more into that as I share with you uh, my personal testimony. Um, so you'll have the outline on the back of your bulletin of what we're going to cover today. And so you should be able to follow along fairly easily. Um, there's just one other thing I want to mention as I get started here, and that is that I have cross-references for some of what we're going to talk about today, and I have a little bit of difficulty turning in my Bible. So what I like to do when I am addressing an audience is to encourage people in the audience to have their Bibles ready to read the cross-references for us, primarily the men present. Um, And that will do two things. It will help me not to have to turn in my Bible so much, and also hopefully it will keep you awake. So if we accomplish both of those things, uh, that is a great thing. But before we dig into our message today, I just wanted to give you a little bit of information about Memorial Day. Because we are here um, because of the sacrifices of so many in our past. The United States of America came to be because our founding fathers pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for freedom. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to hear Paul Harvey give his oratory on this topic, but he basically goes through and talks about all of the sacrifices that the signers made for the words of the Declaration. They signed it in secret, 
and didn't reveal the contents of it for about two months after they signed it because they knew that the last line of that declaration would be true, that they would pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to defend it. Very few of them survived very long after they signed it. Many of them died or at the very least gave up big portions of their family for what they believed. On Facebook, I see a meme going around at this time of year often that says, there's only two people that ever gave their lives for you. Those are the American soldier and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are indebted to both of them as we sit here today. I have freedom to share with you the gospel without fear that a police officer is going to come into that door and tell me that I can't because of what our troops have done for us. Because so many died for the rights that we have. And for people that don't understand the freedom that we have in this country, they spit in the face of those veterans. And it grieves my heart. But here is what PBS says about Memorial Day. We do not know one promise that these men made, one pledge they gave, one word they spoke, but we do know they summed up and perfected by one supreme act the highest virtues of men and citizens. For love of country, they accepted that death and thus resolved all doubts and made immortal their patriotism and their virtue. And this was James A. Garfield, President Garfield, speaking at the first Memorial Day service at Arlington National Cemetery on May 30th, 1868. That is when Memorial Day became a national observance. PBS writes, originally called Decoration Day, from the early tradition of decorating graves with flowers, wreaths, and flags, Memorial Day is a day for remembrance of those who have died in the service of our country. It was first widely observed on May 30th, 1868, to commemorate the sacrifices of Civil War soldiers by proclamation of General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic, an organizer of an organization of former Union sailors and soldiers. During the first national commemoration, former Union general and sitting Ohio congressman, so I guess he wasn't president yet, James Garfield made a speech at the Arlington National Cemetery, after which 5,000 participants helped to decorate the graves of more than 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers who were buried there. This national event galvanized efforts to honor and remember fallen soldiers that began with local observance at burial grounds in small towns throughout the United States following the end of the Civil War, such as the May 1, 1865 gathering in Charleston, South Carolina, organized by freed slaves to pay tribute and give proper burial to the Union troops. In 1873, New York was the first state to designate Memorial a legal holiday. By the late 1800s, many more cities and communities observed Memorial Day, and several states had declared it a legal holiday. After World War I, it became an occasion for honoring those who died in all of America's wars, and was then more widely established as a national holiday throughout the United States. In 1971, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act that established that Memorial Day was to be commemorated on the last Monday of May. 
Memorial Day is commemorated at Arlington National Cemetery each year with a ceremony in which a small American flag is placed on each grave. Traditionally, the president or the vice president lays a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And of course, that is from pbs.org. So I just wanted to put that out there, the beginning of our message today, to give an acknowledgement of those um, who gave so much. All gave some, but some gave all, and we are very thankful to each of them. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open your word today together, that we would be blessed and that we would learn the things that you would have us to do. And most of all, Lord, I pray that we would be better people for having been under the sound of your word this morning. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable to you, O Lord God, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start out by just giving you a little bit of my testimony. And I was born um, in May of 1979. As a matter of fact, my birthday was yesterday. Just turned, just turned 44. So May of 1979, I was born. And I've always thought as a kid that May was a great month to be born. The weather's pretty warm, although I've had a few chilly birthdays. Um, and when I was a kid, I liked the fact that I got presents every six months because six months after my birthday was basically Christmas. So it seemed like a win-win situation. But I was supposed to be born August 11th. So I was born at 29 weeks. And uh, so if anybody ever, ever tells you that a baby isn't a baby... Until it's born after nine months in the womb. I am living testimony that that is not true. My parents were young. They had just married a year before. They were on their last vacation before becoming parents. And I guess I decided that I wanted to join the party. (laughs) So on Sunday, May 27th, 1979 at 11.22 a.m. I made my entrance into the world. And my mom tells me that when I was first born and she heard me cry, she knew I would be okay. Even though there was a lot of unknowns being born that early, in the late 1970s especially. My dad has told me of a little bit different experience, how he would wander the campus of that hospital and beg God for my life. And God spared my life. And my parents told me from as long as I can remember back that God had a special plan for my life. And when I was almost five years old, in April of 1984, my great-grandfather died. And I asked my mom, is he in heaven? And my mom said, I don't know for sure because I don't know what he did with Jesus. She said, you need to know what you are going to do with Jesus. And at that point, I, in the living room with my mom, made a commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with my life. So I have been following him for 
39 years. And it's the best decision I ever made. And I'd like to be able to tell you that it was all roses and daffodils from that point on. But I didn't wake up the next day being able to walk. I didn't wake up the next day being able to run. I still had my disability. So then the question is, what do I do with that? And sadly, for the first nine years of my salvation, my eternal security was plain. Because let me state unequivocally, Jesus said you must be born again if you are to see the kingdom of heaven. But there's never been a case, biologically or spiritually, where one who has been born has become unborn. Being born is a one-time thing. Justification happens instantaneously. Sanctification happens over a lifetime. So, for nine years, I argued with God about the way that he made me. At the eight-year point, my younger brother, I'm the oldest of 12 children, actually, but my younger brother, who was number eight in the family order, John Michael, went to bed for a nap after my mom fed him in the morning. And she checked on him a few times. And when he still wasn't awake at about 12 or 1 p.m., she went up to the bedroom where he was sleeping and found that he was dead. He had gone to be with Jesus. My dad... My dad likes to say that... That God sent an angel and said to John, let's go for a walk. (laughs) And God took him home that day. And July 16th, 1992 was the absolute worst day. Of my entire life. And I remember in the months following that tragic event, sobbing in my mother's arms multiple times and saying, God, why did you take my healthy baby brother and leave me here when I am completely useless? And that is the narrative that I believed at that time. I had already been struggling with how God made me. And now I was faced with losing my brother. My brother was supposed to bury me. 40 or 50 years in the future. I was not supposed to be sitting at a casket. Holding my baby brother's ice cold hand. And wishing that he was there. That was not supposed to happen. And I just wanted to die. There were multiple times during that period where I thought, well, maybe if I just drive my wheelchair in front of a car in front of our house, it will all be over and I can just go to heaven and be with Jesus and John Michael. And I was very bitter and I was very mad at God for what he did to me. Fast forward a year and I go to a conference and one of the topics is 10 things you can't change about your life. And one of those is the way that God made you physically. And at that point, God communicated to me. He said, 
Andrew, I made you. I had a purpose for your life. You don't need physical healing to serve me. You need spiritual healing. You need to get off the throne of your life and put me on it. And when you do that, I will be able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything you've ever asked or thought. And um, so that brings me to the first passage that I want to bring to your attention today. I'm going to look at, first of all, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and then 4 to 13. And the, the story of Moses really ended up resonating with me in my testimony because I feel like Moses and I can relate to one another. So let's read together Exodus 3, 1 to 11. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called unto him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry for reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land unto a good land and large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have seen their oppression, wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses' first response is a good one. He says, Here am I. He says, God, I'm here. I'm listening. But then when God gives him the assignment, the challenge, then he says, Who am I to do this? God will often give someone a task or a burden to accomplish. Then he will make it impossible for them to do it. And then he will do it through them anyway so that he alone gets the credit. 
And I was, I was Moses at this time in my life. I said, who am I to do your work, Lord? I told you already, if you had given me a healthy body, then I could serve you. But because my body is crippled, I can't. But sitting in that conference that day, I was reminded that God is the one who decides what I am capable of. Not myself. Because Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. No one is capable of doing anything without the help of God. So Moses rants for another chapter and a half. Well, about a chapter. And then we come to Exodus Chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, where God has had enough. Listen to what happens. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am of a slow speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send I pray thee by the hand of whom thou wilt send. So he's still saying, even after God said all this, send somebody else. And then what does God do? God brings Aaron to greet Moses, and he said, Aaron will be your prophet. You will be to him as God. He will speak the words you tell him to do. Now, as we go through this journey that the children of Israel take, there are at least a couple of confrontations that he has with Aaron. Because Aaron resents his authority or because Aaron made the golden calf. And I wonder sometimes if Moses could have avoided that, if he'd just been willing to go and let God speak through him as he said he would. Now, I, I can't definitively, dogmatically say that God didn't have a plan for Aaron because God's ultimate plans are always fulfilled. But you have to wonder, when God told Moses to go, and I will give you the words, they're not Moses' words, they're God's words through Moses, then God was going to give Moses the word. God was going to give Moses the victory. You see, God could have said a word and all the Egyptians would have died and the children of Israel could have walked out of Egypt on their own power without a leader. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was, Moses, you will go and you will deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt and I will get the glory. What did Moses say to the children of Israel at the edge of the Red Sea? The children of Israel were excited to be free and now a couple weeks later they're terrified. And he says this, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I think some of us, including myself, need that admonition today. We look into the world, we see the bad news, we see the disregard for life, we see the disregard for God's very image. And he says to us, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. 
So just as God worked through Moses, he can work through us. You know, there's evidence in the book of Acts that when Moses was a young, brash Egyptian prince that he wanted to deliver his people out of Egypt then. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. But he wasn't ready. I've heard a pastor say this. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years in the desert learning that he was actually a nobody. And then he spent 40 years leading the children of Israel out of Egypt in the wilderness learning that God could take a nobody and turn him into a somebody. Incidentally, the biggest adventure of Moses' life did not start until he was 80. So even if you're sitting here and you're in your twilight years, God has a plan for you. And anybody that says otherwise is buying a cultural lie. We need all the generations. We need them to work together. We need them to glorify God. We need them to raise up the next generation. Because the book of Judges in Judges chapter 1 said that all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that served with Joshua, the people served God. But after they all died, what does it say? There arose up a generation who knew not God, nor the works that he had done for Israel. I started speaking for him in 2009 because I said, by God's grace, not on my watch. We have to spread the gospel to the next generation. The gospel is the power of God to everyone that believes. There's no power apart from the gospel. And there's no way apart from Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I want to share with you four different things about my life. Primarily through the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is my favorite book. In part because I went to a banquet when I was 14 years old. This was around the time that I was coming to terms with who God made me. And I went to a banquet and heard Dave Dravecki speak. Dave Dravecki was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. He had arm cancer, they removed his deltoid muscle, and he rehabbed and came back. No one had ever come back to pitching after that severe an injury. He pitched one or two more games, broke his arm, they found the cancer had returned, he had his arm amputated, and then became a preacher slash motivational speaker. And when I went to see him, I got in the autograph line with a couple books and, and my baseball card. And every autograph he gave, he put another verse on there. And one of those was Philippians 120 and 21, which has become my life verse. So that is the first point in the outline, which is my passion. My passion. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. So in Philippians 1, 20 and 21, Paul is talking about his motivation for life. And he says, 
according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul is writing this from a Philippian prison where they are probably threatening to kill him. But he's like, if you keep me alive, I'm going to preach Christ. And if you kill me, I'm going to go to be with Christ. So either way, I win. It's the best win-win situation there ever was. And uh, so that is my passion. If someone could look at Galatians chapter 2.20, very quickly, Galatians 2.20. If you get it, please stand and read it for us. And crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying... That he is crucified with Christ. Remember before his conversion. He was a zealous man. Zealous for what he thought God was. And then he's on the Damascus road. And he falls off his high horse literally. And Jesus calls out to him from heaven. And says what are you doing? It's hard to kick against the goads. And Paul has a life change so dramatic that he changes his name. From Saul of Tarsus to Paul. And he says, I'm not living my own life now. The life that I live, I live by the power of God through Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the power through which we live. Earlier earlier I said, Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. But the converse of that is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is the one through whom we can do all things. That leads me to Philippians chapter 2. My second point, Philippians 2.13. One of my favorite verses ever. I probably mention it in every single sermon I do, or pretty close to it. But it says this, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of your own good pleasure. No, it doesn't say that. For it is God who worketh in you, what? To will and to do of His good pleasure. God works to accomplish His will in your life. Incidentally, this is why I believe wholeheartedly in eternal security. Because God's power will not fall short. God's arm is not a short arm. God completes what he does. So, let's look by way of cross-reference at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit Paul was on a killing rampage when he was persecuting the Christians. He's like, these people are subverting the law. 
They're not obeying. They need to be killed. But then, he came in touch with the living Christ. And the Holy Spirit came upon him and he realized that the Spirit gives life. Our sufficiency is in God. It's not of ourselves. So we've talked about my passion. We've talked about the power in my life, which is Philippians 2.13. God worketh in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3 now. Philippians 3.12-14. My past and pursuit. It can be easy to look back at the past with regret and to say, I made such a mess of those nine years when I wasn't committed fully to following the Lord. I always tell people, I wasted a lot of years. You don't have to make the decision now to not waste any more time. But this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 14. He says, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's kind of interesting because we were talking about the importance of remembrance. In the beginning, when you're talking about Memorial Day. And in a sense, it is important to remember. Why do we do the Lord's table? We do it to remember Him because He told us to. And because we are a forgetful people. Almost every chapter of the first five books of the, or the, the Exodus through Deuteronomy, almost every chapter, somewhere in that chapter says this phrase, I am the God of Israel who led you out of Egypt says it over and over again. Why? Because they were a forgetful people and we still are a forgetful people. But we serve a God who remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame and he loves us anyway. What a wonderful thing that is. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempted in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we are an incorruptible. And therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beareth feet of the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should not be cast away. So Paul realizes a couple of things here. First of all, he realizes the fact that we are in a race. And we need to constantly be training for that race and be prepared for the journey. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It's a journey. If you've ever read the the Christian allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, you see that there were many times that Christian was derailed and he had to get back on track. Praise God that God allows us to get back on track when we get derailed. Paul had a lot to think about in his past. 
He was a witness to Stephen's stoning. You think he didn't ever think about it? I think he thought about it. I think he regretted it every day of his life. But he had to press forward. He had to reach forward to the prize of the high calling that is in Christ Jesus. The, the calling of Christ is a high calling. It's important for us to remember that Jesus didn't lo- or God didn't lower the standards to let us into heaven. The standard is still perfection. What he did was he lowered Christ to us to fulfill this perfect standard so that we could go to heaven. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be right to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So my final point this morning um Based on these first three, my passion, the power in my life, my past and pursuit is the promises I believe. The promises I believe. And for that, we go to Philippians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 and then verses 13 and 19. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then we read Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And then Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So I I hope that this encourages you that you can claim these promises as well. That the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts through Christ Jesus when we make our wants and needs known by prayer and supplication. Jesus is listening. He wants to answer our prayer. And we so often in our culture... Make prayer a last resort. I've done everything I can do. Now, let me pray. But I really think prayer needs to be our first resort. We need to pray and seek God for wisdom for what he would have us to do. Because the Bible says that if any man asks wisdom of God, he will give it to him. He does not withhold wisdom from those who ask. But we need to ask in faith, nothing wavering. So we need to believe that God will give us wisdom. Okay, I have four quick cross-references here, so I think we can get through them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to We are not capable in our own understanding of doing the right thing. The Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So we must have him to direct us. John 14, 27. John 14, 27. 
shall be with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your, your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this peace that Jesus gives us is a peace that allows us not to be afraid no matter what is going on. Now, I know that he knows that we will, we will fear, um, but it's amazing when we are anxious or when I am anxious, how prayer can help to alleviate that anxiousness. Because he told us, that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He walks with us through life. Second Corinthians twelve, seven to ten. Second Corinthians twelve, seven to ten. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in flesh, the messenger of Satan to Lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord Christ that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have had about three times in my life where people have told me in one form or another that Jesus died for my healing, my physical healing, as much as for my spiritual, and so that um, could they, I had the first time it was somebody, so they said, can I pray for your healing? And, and I was like, well, I appreciate prayers from anyone who will pray for me, so I allowed them to pray for me, and then the next three days I was in like a mini depression and saying, Lord, why are you not healing me? They, they prayed for me to be healed. And this was after my rededication to the Lord. Um, but there was another time when I was about 28 years old where it was like, you've been preaching for 14 years that, that I know best. God was having this conversation with me. He said, you've been preaching for 14 years that I know best. Do you really believe it? And... At that point, I had to re-surrender and be like, okay, God, what are you going to show me? And he brought me to John chapter 9, where the disciples said, Who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither. But that the power of God may be made manifest in him. Now, in that case, Jesus healed the blind man and got a bunch of glory, and that's a story that we can read over and over again and see how God worked. But in my case, it was much like Paul, where God has said no to my earthly healing. But he's also said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You know, we all need help from others, and we're all stubborn, so we don't like to ask for help. But if I didn't ask for help this morning, I would still be laying in my bed. So I am reminded every day in a physical way of my spiritual need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is such a blessing to me now that I understand it. And I had another instance where a, where a man uh, stopped by the rescue mission where I was working. 
I gave him my testimony. We had good fellowship, so I naively gave him my phone number. He calls me up the next day. He said, I've been praying all night for you, and I think I know how you can get right with God so you can walk. And he went on like that for about 40 minutes, and I said, I'm sorry, sir. I said, it's been a long journey for me to get to a place of acceptance that God knew what he was doing more than me. And I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I know that my walk with God is closer than it's ever been before. And I hung up on him, and I've never talked to him since. But that was another earth-shattering experience for me. To think that there are actually people that believe that. Because notice Paul in this passage, he doesn't say, most gladly therefore will I ignore my infirmities. Most gladly therefore will I throw them away or pretend they don't exist. No, he said, I will glory in my infirmities. Because my infirmity is what set me apart. My infirmity is what God uses as a vessel to minister his message. My hope is that when people see me living life and doing things that others may have thought that I couldn't do, that they will be encouraged that if I can do it, they can. Because the same God that empowers me can empower them. So, as we close today, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to address you. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story. I would ask for your continued prayers on my ministry. Um, I was able to preach every Sunday this month, which is a blessing. Um, My hope is that in the coming months I would um, get even busier because my my prayerful goal is that this will one day become my full-time income. I'm still praying for a life partner. Genesis says it's not good for a man to be alone, and I fully believe that and I would like to share this ministry with someone in the Lord's will so if you could pray for me along um, those lines I would appreciate it I know that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think so I'm just asking in faith and asking you to join with me I would encourage you to check out my weekly podcast every Wednesday on my website speakingforhim.com I try to give encouragement every week for this journey that we call the Christian life and my latest episode um, was a review of season 3 episode 3 of The Chosen so if you like The Chosen I've been reviewing that on my podcast I have several series Um, I've been dealing a lot with apologetics I had one series that um, deals with uh, unique aspects of Christianity. That Those came from a Tim Keller blog post. Um, and then I had one that talked about problems with modern Christianity. Because we need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. So my final challenge to you is to get into the word of God. The Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It wasn't my parents who got through to me when I was struggling with bitterness. It wasn't my friends who got through to me. They were praying for me. They loved me. 
But it was the word of God that permeated my hard heart and showed me that I was just a vessel and that God was the one that does the work. But nothing that I've said today matters one iota if you haven't made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Jesus from the dead and proclaim this with your mouth, you will be saved. So if you have not, I would urge you to do that today. For neither is there salvation in any other For there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved but that name of Jesus. And that's why so many people hate the name of Jesus today because the name of Jesus is where the power is at. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it never changes for you said Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know that Jesus did not just come to exist in the womb of a virgin, but that he condescended from eternity past to go into the womb of a virgin and to be born of a woman so that he may redeem those who are under the law. And we thank you for that. We pray that you would bless us as we go our way and that we would honor you this weak in our words and our actions, and so draw more people to the kingdom and give more glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.